love that theme music. Love hearing that theme music because it can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of the Steam Room, uh, the Steam Room podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And we appreciate you being a loyal steamer and tuning in. Uh, Ernie Johnson here along with Charles Barkley. Chuck, how you feeling? Hey, man, it's so great to be back at work. Uh, it's, wait, this technically work? Uh, sort of, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It uh, qualifies. Yeah, I mean, so last week was awesome. Because I had not seen Kenny and Shaq's face Mm-mm. in like a forever. Then I saw your mug. And now we get our ratings back because them two fools are off the air. <laughs> <laughs> so we gotta, you got a first of all for us here on, on this episode? I want to give a shout out. Uh, I want to be redundant, man. I cannot thank the first responders and the nurses and the doctors enough. You know, you you can thank them, but it's really not enough. I mean, cause I, I can't, like, they don't have the face mask. They don't have the gloves. But they, you see several of them have died uh, through this situation. And I just, I can never say thank you to them enough. Yeah. You know, uh, so I just want to, that, that's kind of my first of all. And also, I just want to talk about the, the effect that this thing is having on the black community because obviously there's a great disparity and people always want to talk about black and white is really about economics uh, and it's having a huge effect upon the black community and when this thing is over uh, I don't even, first of all I'm not sure it's gonna not ever going to be over we're going to have to take a step back and look at how we can get uh better health care. Uh, we got to do a much better job of taking care of ourselves. We still got to work on, you know, diabetes, obesity, have been problems in the black community for a long time. But with the way this uh, virus is working and having a huge effect on the black community, we really got to do a much better job of taking care of ourselves and also just find a way to get better health care. And we can't say systematic racism. We very we know systematic racism works. Uh, it's all, and it's always been there, and it's always going to be there. But you, you can always find a reason to blame something on something, is my point. But we just got to do a much better job of taking care of ourselves, Ernie. Yeah, this is one of the things that we spoke um I did an NBA Together uh, interview yesterday with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and with Mark Morial, who's the uh, the head of the National Urban League. So we discussed that at that point also. And that's something we're going to discuss uh, with Dr. Myron Roll here and this edition of the of the uh, steam room as well. Uh, you know, Dr. Myron Roll is a former NFL player, neurosurgeon working at uh, uh, Mass General. And uh, amazing, amazing man, yeah, a fascinating story to tell, and we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. So that's your that's your first of all, and and here's my first of all. Uh, I'm I'm repping today my daughter's school where she teaches, Buford High School, um, and um, also repping one of your favorite hobbies. It's the Buford, it's the Buford High School fishing team. Wow, wouldn't you love to have been on a basketball and been on the fishing team when you were in Leeds? At least I would have passed another class, basketball and fishing. <laughs> I would have been a, a twofer. <laughs> you know, Ernie. You know, you you obviously you're proud of your family. Uh, you got amazing kids, but you know, Maggie's like one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. Being a teacher to me is one of they're the most amazing people. 
I mean, I just got anybody who got the courage to be a teacher. I always say the same things about being a cop or a fireman or a teacher or somebody like that, anybody in the armed service. But I will tell you, I bet these parents, when school goes back, they're going to be hugging Maggie's neck saying, thank you for taking these bad kids. <laughs> yeah, we never had any idea what it yeah. was like. Yeah, because because sure. I think I've had friends of mine say, I'm never going to say a bad thing about a teacher again, because spending all day with your kid, especially when they're young, just trying to occupy their time. It's like, man, teachers are just amazing people. So shout out to your daughter. Thank you so much. I will pass that on to Maggie, although she's a she's also a loyal steamer. So I won't even have to tell her that the Chuckster shouted her out. She will have heard it. If the Beaufort fishing team need, you know, some guest speakers and take them go fishing with them, Chuck can do that. Yeah, exactly. And, this, and you wouldn't want to do that virtually. You'd want to be right there in the boat. Oh, no, that's you'd no want, virtual. That's no virtual. I won't do that in person. <laughs> let's take a break here on the steam room. And when we come back, let's talk to Dr. Myron Roll uh, about his role uh, on the front line in the fight against COVID-19. We'll be back. Back here on the steam room, Chuckster, we have uh, we have a guest. This is somebody that you know personally. I don't know how well you know him. I know the guys <laughs> have are have have made an acquaintance before. Uh, I think it was in in the airport, right? It, exactly correct. And all I said was, he. I don't even know if you remember. I said, "Man, I'm really proud of you. I love what you're doing." And obviously, the rest is history. Doctor Myron Roll, um, who uh, I think we've seen. You know, if you've been watching the coverage of the pandemic and you've seen his story um, told and retold, he's been interviewed many, many times on many shows uh, on the front lines, a guy who used to play in the NFL. Myron, let me ask you a question. Why don't you think more jocks take academics seriously? Yeah, good question, man. First, thanks for having me on. Um, honor, definitely. And I remember that meeting that we had, and I do remember you telling me you're proud of me. And first, I was shocked that you even knew who I was, uh, so that was really cool. I told my parents immediately, and they were excited too. But I, I think um, a lot of the reasons why academics aren't um, a priority, perhaps for some student athletes, is basically, you know, several of these players come from situations and backgrounds where. Uh, their quick means or mode to providing for their family, being the main breadwinner, uh, is through sports, through this God-given talent that they have. And throughout their ascent in this career, uh, they've been, you know, sort of coddled and taught that, yeah, you know, just focus on your craft and don't worry about anything else. Just kind of continue to be a great basketball player, football player, you know, track star, whatever the case may be, uh, and everything else will handle itself. And so without putting um, a concerted and deliberate effort into wanting to be an academic, uh, academic uh, serious person, uh, I think it's easy sort of to take the road to just focus on sports. And then by the time sports are done, which we all know, they all do, and for everyone, uh, you need to find a new passion. For me, personally, you know, coming from the Bahamas and growing up in South Jersey, you know, my parents were like, look, this is an amazing chance that we have to be in America. Uh, your cousins would love to have been here. Your God brothers would love to have been here, but you're here now. We don't have a lot of money, but academics would be a priority for you. And if sports take you somewhere, great, but you're going to make it through your intellectual ability. And so I think it was having that influence early 
to say, yeah, you know, I'm good in sports, I'm good in football, uh, but there's also something else that, you know, makes my parents proud and that there was, there was hardwired into my mind early and kind of allowed me to have that balance and that parallel. So when football finished, I can go on to neurosurgery like I'm doing now here in Boston. Uh, Byron, you know, I, uh, I look back at your commencement address at Monmouth um, from 2015. My daddy said, Myron, there have been people who have looked like you, have come from similar backgrounds as you, they have used their mind, their intellect, their leadership ability to galvanize massive amounts of people to become in the front line of their generation and great leaders. And son, you can do the same thing. My father was charging me with the responsibility to be a great leader of my generation. He placed that burden on my shoulders at 12 years old, and I felt honored that my daddy thought so much of his last son. Because in your life, maybe you face it already, or maybe you will face it soon, there'll be a moment where you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. Do I want to sit back and be a sideline spectator and a boundary observer while others in my generation get in the front line and get on the stage and become players, as William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon once said? Or do I get into the front line of this generation and become a strong leader? Then I kind of did the math in my head, and I'm thinking uh, probably it was 21 years ago when you were a 12-year-old. How prophetic it was of your father to use the word front line uh, back at that time. Uh, that now that's where you find yourself. Is there a is there a way you can describe a typical day uh, to us uh, as you deal with these victims of COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my father, as you mentioned, really was sort of uh, a visionary, right? And, and still is, and wanted me to um, to be like Paul Robeson and Kofi Annan and Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X and Booker T. Washington, some of these, you know, amazing black figures who um, I potentially could ascend uh, to be, or I could just walk in their footsteps uh, and use, you know, my mind and my, uh, my leadership abilities that I developed over time to break open doors for other people to follow. And so here we are now with COVID-19. I'm obviously uh, a neurosurgery resident and love the brain and spine and do operate on those particular parts of the body. But because the influx has been so high, especially here in Boston at my hospital, Mass General, uh, and because we're expecting even more people next week and the week after that, um, our roles have shifted. And now as a neurosurgical department, we've offered our services to the whole hospital in volunteering to man and manage and triage some of these COVID-19 patients who come off the street. Our floors have been completely turned and transformed into COVID-19-only floors. Our operating rooms, we slowed those down so that if they need to be turned into an ICU, that's possible. And also, uh, our neurosurgical clinic, our outpatient clinic, has now just been done virtually to kind of prevent people from coming into the hospital and potentially the anitis for infection. So it is um, very different, very challenging at this moment. But as you mentioned, you know, my, my father sort of put it on me that uh, when there's moments of crisis or when there's times where you can step forward and, and do something positive for someone else, do it, regardless if you've had, you know, the, the training to do it. Just have the willingness, do it with alacrity, and, uh, and get it done. So that's, um, that's been great for me. As far as a, a typical day, uh, give us an example of a typical day for you right now. So I'm working 24-hour shifts. Uh, so I go in, you know, early, 4.30, a.m. Uh, sometimes those 24-hour shifts turn into 28 hours if I have to stay and do paperwork or something like that. But I go into the hospital, and uh, immediately, immediately when you walk in, you have to show the security guards at our hospital uh, this app. And basically, you go down and say, if you have no symptoms, 
then you're cleared for work that day. But if you have symptoms, muscle aches, fever, cough, something new onset, uh, shortness of breath, congestion, then you get triaged a different way. So we're basically trying to make sure that no one's entering the hospital as an employee sick. I put on a face mask like everyone has to. Uh, the hospital hallways are bare because no visitors are allowed anymore. I round them my patients who are on the neurosurgical service, and a lot of them actually either are COVID-19 positive or are COVID-19 rule-outs. Because a lot of things people maybe aren't you know, so much addressing in, um, in the large scope of this issue is that there are diseases, upper respiratory illnesses that are similar and mimic COVID-19, right? So you have to parse out whether this is pneumonia or the common cold or flu or something else. And so we have a lot of rule-outs uh, that are on our service. But I'd man the emergency department, go see brain bleeds, brain tumors, you know, neurosurgical issues. But a lot of these patients, again, have COVID-19. And so walking into these rooms, making sure that I'm prepared with my equipment, my mask, my, mask, my gowns, my gloves, my face shields, going in quickly, getting my exam very quickly on the patients, getting my history, doing the tasks that I need to do, and getting out as fast as I could to not, you know, risk the overexposure, right? Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm a part of this surge clinic that we're having at the hospital where, you know, we just take the direction and the lead of our medical doctors, our intensivists, our anesthesiologists, our critical care doctors and nurses that sort of tell us, you know, how to manage these patients. And it's been great. It's really been a collective team effort here at National. So it's an intense day. Uh, there's really no slowing down. I might get some rest around like 1 or 2 a.m., maybe about an hour or so. I sleep in our call room. Uh, but then you have to get back up and, and do it again. So that's it. How much do you and your colleagues worry about going home with it, with having contracted it? Yes, uh, it's a great question. Uh, we're very concerned, and I am personally very concerned. You know, I just got married four months ago, uh, so I'd love to see my newlywed, obviously, and um, you know, be around her. But just to be safe, um, I sent her down to Georgia, uh, Columbus, Georgia, you know, where she's from, to be with her family and kind of stay away from me. So the risk of her contracting something that I may have at the hospital, um, you know, isn't high. So it's hard uh, to be apart from your family. That's part of the emotional burden that a lot of us are facing at this point. But um, for me, you know, as I mentioned, just try to be very careful, take the extra time to protect myself with the right equipment. Don't go into a room seven, eight, nine times with a COVID-19 patient. Just kind of get what you need to get and get out as quickly as possible. And then take off my scrubs before I get home so I'm not bringing anything into my own space. So these are some of the, the ways I'm trying to be creative and smart with this. Well, two things I want to say. Number one, you have to be crazy to play football. I, know, I learned that after one day of playing football. You have to be crazy. <laughs> But also, you have to be mentally, you know, people talk about the physical, but I know for a fact I wasn't physically, mentally tough enough to play football. How has football helped you, especially in this such unique situation? Yeah, another great question. Football has uh, taught me a lot, honestly, and it's really prepared me in several different ways. I would say, Starting playing football when I was six and, you know, having cousins who play in the NFL, Samari Roll, Antro Roll, you know, it's been a part of my, my bloodline for a while. Uh, and I think the traits that have developed in me in discipline and focus, um, being able to be a teammate, right, and understanding that, you know, the team and the collective goal is uh, more important than individual passions or interests at this point, right? I would love to be taken out of brain tumor of a patient or helping to clip an aneurysm or fixing a degenerative spine or something like that. I would love to do it because I went into neurosurgery to do these things, but that's not the call right now. These aren't the vulnerable patients that we're dealing with. Uh, so being a teammate and understanding that 
the collective goal of facing this very challenging infectious disease is more important than personal interest. That that's been a huge for me. But I think the best crossover trade for me at this point has been uh, mitigating pressure and also knowing how to be flexible and adaptable. Um, as as you know, uh, Chuck, when we're um, called to like have a an assignment during a game and you prepare all week for that assignment, like, oh, I'm going to play cover two zone. You know, we're going to play our zone coverage and I'm going to cut down this whole half of the field. This receiver is going to be shut down. It's going to be great. But then halfway through the game, Coach Bowden says, yeah, we're going to switch and play man-to-man now. And so you have to refocus and reshape your mind to say, okay, we're going to play man-to-man and lock down this great receiver from University of Florida with Tim Tebow throwing in the ball. And it's just, you, know, you got to adjust and be flexible and go back to your fundamentals. And uh, I'm seeing that here now. And, uh, so the traits are, are great. And that's why I tell any student athlete that I talk to a mentor, you know, think about medicine, really think about surgery in specific because it is a team sport and uh, you can use a lot of things that you developed your whole life in this new career. Let me ask you about something that I know that you've, you've done a lot of research on and I've, hear, I've heard you speak about it before is also the, uh, the disproportionate number of, of fatalities of African-Americans due to this coronavirus. Um, and the Surgeon General, uh, General Adams, the other day, um, when he was addressing this, said, you know, the African-American community, the, the Latino community need to step up and uh, made a lot of people mad um, with that characterization uh, of this. Um, how do you put all of that into perspective for us? Yeah, so... You know, I think that if you're black or brown and you come to our hospital, Mass General, you're going to have quality care. The delivery of care, I think, is not so much the issue. Um, We have the resources and we're willing to allocate them on the people who are the most sick, uh, regardless of where you come from. But I do think that COVID-19 has further illuminated and sort of heightened this awareness of this already existent healthcare disparity and gap in our country. We know it. It's been there. Even in the city of Boston, you see it between the patients that come to National Hospital and the patients that go to Boston Medical Center, which is a heavy trauma place. It gets a lot of the black and brown community. There's difference. There's a difference in level of access and affordability. I think if you're asking people who are black and brown in low socioeconomic places, the social distance, the physical distance, it's hard when you live in close quarters, eight or nine people under the same roof, a bunch of people in the same apartment building, difficult to practically do that. If they have to go to work or they had to go to work, um, they would have public transportation, which again, close proximity in a bus, subway, that's another night is potentially for infection. And we know that emerging non-communicable diseases, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, these things run in this certain demographic, black and brown people. We know it hits this group harder and you know it's in your bloodline. Um, So if you don't have access to a primary care physician or you can't afford it, or you just practically can't take the time out of your day to see these doctors, to know that you have these pre-existing conditions, to know that you can, you know, potentially have medications to help treat it. Or if you know that you have it, but you can't afford the medications to afford it, then that becomes an issue. And anecdotally, I also know that in the black community, especially, you know, our matriarchs and patriarchs of our family, they often sacrifice their own health so that they can provide for the family, put food on the table, keep the lights on, make sure that everybody's taken care of rather than themselves. So in this infectious disease like coronavirus that really hits people who have pre-existing conditions, if you don't know you have it, or if you do have it, you're not managing it, 
is going to hit you a lot harder. And I think that's why the stats are so high in this particular population. So what do you do? Uh, I think that it's more than just having the black and brown community step up. Uh, I think it's more than that. I think it needs to be the main power broker, the people who can swipe a pen and make some policy changes, the people at the high level, they need to change this very structurally violent system that's been going on for a long time. What we can do as medical providers is provide education to this group and say, look, you know, your health is important, place a priority on it so that when the next pandemic comes and it's trying to hit people who have pre-existing conditions and comorbidities like you potentially have, that you're ready. Because we know hurricanes, natural disasters, you know, depressions, they affect poor people the most. They do. It hits the poorest people all the time. And if we know that's the case, we got to get out in front of this. But it takes multiple levels, a multifaceted approach, multidimensional approach to fix this issue. And I hope that now that we're seeing these numbers just being staggering, that we, we do a better job of it. You know, we sit around and we talk about in the black community, you know, obviously diabetes hypertension, obesity, systematic racism. We're already in a, in a, in a tough fight. And, and obviously, like you said, when hurricanes happen, poverty really kicks in. What's the number one piece of advice? Uh, you did a little bit there. What, what, what advice would you give for the black community going forward? Because even when this pandemic is over, it's still gonna be financial ruin for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd say in this particular moment, um, this COVID-19 moment, um, if you feel that you're symptomatic or you can, you think that there's been some level of exposure, don't wait on it. Right. I have parents and grandparents who often say, oh, child, I'm good. I'm okay. You know, I'm all right. Don't worry about me. Right. It's always like, I'm good. Just worry about yourself. Take care of yourself. And that's an issue. You know, we, 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 we sort of need to get over uh, or get through this idea that, uh, you know, our health can be sort of placed secondary. And I'm obviously biased because I'm in healthcare, but I, I think there needs to be an idea that let's shift the, the paradigm where if you have a symptom or you think you've been exposed or you have anything, honestly, anything, go see it and be, have it checked out immediately because the quicker you get on it, the faster that you can get treatment, the faster that you can be managed and dealt with appropriately rather than letting it get to a very dire and, and extreme level where it may be past the point of return. So that's, I think, what we could do in the present moment. And then after this, you know, it's, it's just about continuing our education, continuing our, our developing ourselves, right? Looking out within our community to check on each other and make sure that we're eating the right things, we're, we're doing the right things, we're getting checked up the right way, we're finding ways to access health, the healthcare industry that is very difficult, as we know, with so many challenges and impediments for these people, but we're finding the right avenues. And us as providers, and people who are into public health issues like myself, you know, we're making that access a lot easier. So there's a two-pronged approach for sure. And, um, you know, I just, I just hope that it gets better for sure because we need it. We need it. Dr. Myron Roll, it has been uh, an honor speaking with you. We appreciate you taking the time out of um, what is an incredible schedule as you described it for us already. Let me recommend to folks who are listening here to the steam room, look, you can, you can go online and see some of the stories about his journey through high school and college football player of the year in ACC and, and Rhodes Scholar. Um, but you can also find this address, this commencement address at Monmouth University. Um, it's about 20 minutes long and it is exquisite. My objective today, young graduates, 
is to leave you 2% better, 2% improved, 2% edified towards your personal journey, your goals, your ambitions. My young friends, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for your future. I'm very excited for this day. I love coming here and speaking to young people like yourself uh, because I take this as sort of like a recruiting pitch to get you in the front line with me so, so we can join arm in arm and do big things together. There's a lot of work to be done. I know you can do it. The school is primed and ready you to do it. It's just about getting it done. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Dr. Rowe, you said you just wanted to leave those kids uh, 2% better. Um, That's right. And you know what? I feel much more than 2% better after talking to you. And, and we appreciate all you're doing. Oh, man. Well, that, that humbles me. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it for, uh, for letting me have the opportunity to speak with you. Definitely. No, we we honored to have you on the steam room. And listen, and I said earlier, man, you said you mentor young brothers. I wish you could get your head a lot of these young brothers because I'd be blessed to go to the NBA, and that's a blessing. But man, ninety nine percent of these kids never gonna step foot in, on the NFL field or the NBA, but they can be a doctor. To me, that's amazing, and I wish we had more, especially young black kids, following in your footsteps. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that, Charles. I mean, it means a lot. Appreciate you guys. You're very welcome, my brother. Thank you. God bless you. All right. Thanks, guys. You are listening to The Steam Room, my favorite podcast, Charles' favorite podcast. Yes, yes, Uh, yes. Pretty safe to say. Uh, I have a feeling I know what you're going to be doing Sunday night, about 9 o'clock Eastern time. I bet you're going to be in front of the set with a lot of sports fans. Uh, watching uh, uh, that Michael Jordan thing we've heard so much about, The Last Dance, first couple episodes of a 10-part production. You looking forward to it? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it for two reasons. Number one, it's going to bring back some great memories for me uh, because, not to talk about me, but I came into the league with Michael Jordan the exact same year. So our our careers parallel each other. I mean, obviously, he's a better player than me, but seeing all the old footage – I'm going to know all the guys in it. That's what's going to be funny to watch. Like, it's yeah. going to, like, I, you know, I, I can't wait to see some of the old guys that I'm going to see. Because I thought, you know, once you're an old guy, all you got is memories. I'm looking forward to that. They sat you down for this, didn't they? Yes. And, well, and also, I knew a lot of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes because of my friendship with Michael. And... What what's going to be very interesting is the, there's going to be a couple debates to come out of it. Uh, number one, if Michael didn't retire, would they have won eight championships in a row? Which is a fair question. Yeah. And secondly, everybody else on the team other than Michael played like another five years at actually a pretty good level. So the question would be, could they? I mean, Jerry Krause broke up the team and fired everybody or traded everybody. It'd be interesting to see that team actually. I was very surprised that everybody, Scotty Rodman played uh, three or four more years. Steve Kerr played another five years. How good that team, like Michael said, Michael said it when he was on Good Morning America. Like, I was pissed because we wanted somebody to take the championship from us. And I thought that was a very fair, legitimate point. Yeah. Uh, do you think you're going to learn anything you didn't already know? No, I'm pretty sure I knew that Michael hated Jerry Krause. Uh, <laughs> but, with, but, 
But what are you most what are you most looking forward to then? If you know all the stories, what do you what's what's going to keep you hooked? Well, just to learn more about the other guys. Like uh, I don't know Scottie Pippen that well. Uh, I want to know what was going on behind the scenes with him. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of great Dennis Rodman stuff. I did not know. Think about it. I didn't know until I saw the trailer that Phil Jackson actually called that season when he was giving out the playbook, the last dance. Yeah. All the stuff obviously is going to come together and we're going to know a lot of stuff. But the animosity behind the scenes about ego, like who's getting credit and things like that, clearly these guys did not like each other. I mean, it's amazing to me that guys who won six championships couldn't be like, yo, man, we did this thing together. Let's ride it out. Instead of saying, let me just burn down the house. Like, to me, that's just stupid. Like, wait, you guys won six championships. You're in the conversation as the greatest basketball team ever. Um, either one of the three peaks. And you're just going to break up because you don't like each other. Uh, I want to know more why they didn't like each other. I, I can't wait to see that aspect of it. Shoot, Chuck, you've been on enough teams to know that uh, there's it's no requirement and it's and it's darn near impossible to have one through 12 or one through 15 all loving each other. You know, they're going to be, they're going to be some clicks. They're going to be some head button that you just can't get around. I mean, that, I mean, it's very rare that you get a whole team that's, boy, they're really cohesive and everybody's, uh, you know, sunshine and, and balloons. Yeah. I, I, and I totally agree with that. But do you think that if you're able, number one, it's hard enough to win one championship. I know that person cause I didn't win any, but if you win two or three championships, like you can at least tolerate each other enough because there, because the one thing I, I know about this, this documentary, Michael Jordan, other than Tiger Woods, they're the most charismatic athletes I've ever been around. When I was around Michael, I've never seen people behave like they have around him. And when I was with Tiger in his heyday, I've never seen people respond like that. And I've been around a lot of great players uh, in all sports. But Michael and Tiger are the two athletes I've ever been around who people flat out lose their damn mind. <laughs> so when me and Michael were hanging out when he was playing baseball, we would go out. He played in Arizona. So we would play golf and hang out quite a bit. And we would go out. We'd have to roll off an area, Ernie. And there would be 20 or 30 people just staring at him play pool. Just staring <laughs> at him play pool. And other than Tiger and his heyday, and like I say, I've been around the great Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, Willie Mays, guys like that. People, Michael and Tiger are the only two athletes I've ever been around that people absolutely lose their mind. Yeah, but you know, I and I can appreciate you saying that, but Chuck, so you get – you get a lot of that yourself. Yeah, Ernie, but it, Ernie, I'm telling you. But I have. I mean, I, I've seen you in the airport, and you're trying to hide with a fishing hat. But And people, hey, that looks like Charles Barkley in a fishing hat. And then here you're taking pictures, and you're doing everything else. And they will. They'll, they'll just sit there and watch you drink a Diet Coke, yeah. you know, and, and, and take pictures of it. But that's, 
that goes with your territory, I reckon. It, it goes with the territory, but I tell people, man, uh, the closest I've come to feeling like that was when I was with the Dream Team, where, they, they, where people were flat out losing their mind. But even when I was with the Dream Team, like they'd see me, they give a little polite applause or call them along. They see Magic and uh, Magic and Bird, they give like a louder cheer. But when Michael came through, they took it to a whole nother level. Going to be fun to watch, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be doing what you're doing on Sunday night too. I'll be, I'll be checking that out at nine o'clock Eastern time. It's uh, almost that time where we welcome uh, the legendary producer of Inside the NBA. Uh, that would be Tim Kiley. His segment is coming your way next. Words have changed during the quarantine. Now we use the word legendary for anybody. This ranks up with one of my favorite segments of the show every week. Uh, it, it's got to be top five in this five-segment show. Um, Tim Kiley, longtime producer of Inside the NBA, always bringing us up to speed, Chuckster, on uh, things that are happening, sometimes sports stories, sometimes news stories. You know, he scours the uh, social media to see what people are doing. That's uh, it's a very valuable role he serves. Well, he's got a role. <laughs> valuable, valuable is an Elvis statement. He's got a role. Yeah. Which is theme of the show today, role. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're, that's very good. I, I saw what you did there, Chuckster. I wanted to congratulate both you guys. You know, you mentioned this earlier, right? but this is uh, the 13th. Yep. So I'm going to put my Marino hat on, Chuck. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Another has nothing to do with congratulating us on 13 episodes. It's just another way to to weasel Dan Marino into the show. Hey, this, let me take a wild guess. You went to Columbia, too. Uh, yes. I almost got thrown out, but I made it, Chuck. <laughs> I made it. Hey, Chuck, you say this a lot. I don't want to be the old man on the front porch yelling and complaining, but 73 years ago on the 15th of April, Monumental moment in history happened. But apparently the people on Jeopardy didn't know that. One of the topics covered in a Major League Baseball course at Arizona State is this player who broke the color barrier in 1947. Schalke. Who is Babe Ruth? Nope. Nathaniel. Who is Jackie Robinson? Yes. <laughs> Babe Ruth? <laughs> hey, that was awesome. So we just celebrated that day again. And here, you know, this is why on my bag, on my work bag, I've always, since uh, I was doing a game on TBS one year when uh, it was uh, Jackie Robinson Day and everybody was wearing 42 and uh, they gave us a patch. And I've kept that on here. And people say, hey, where'd you get the Jackie Robinson bag? I said, it's just the, it's just the patch which turns it into a Jackie Robinson bag. But, yeah, awesome. Did your dad pitch against him, Ernie? My dad played against Jackie Robinson and uh, and uh, did okay against him. But the best thing is uh, – and, and Jackie racked up a few hits off my dad too. But, you know, my dad just talked about him being um, just his drive. And he said the way he ran the bases – he hadn't seen anybody do it like that with the spikes digging in and it just huffing and puffing and, and all out. And he did say he had a good sense of humor because my dad was at the plate one day 
you know, and, and back in those days, relief pitchers would hit every now and then. And so my dad's at the plate and um, Jackie's at first base, playing first base. And uh, my dad took a big cut and swung and missed. And Jackie and my dad, he kind of had kind of this high pitched voice. And he's like, pretty good stick up there. And my dad looked out at first and Jackie was just laughing as he said it. Um, so yeah, I mean, those, those kind of memories, those kind of stories are just, uh, are just priceless. Man, we're so lucky and blessed that those guys opened doors up for guys like myself and Shaq and Kenna to be able to play pro sports. And uh, hopefully we can make them proud. Uh, anytime I get to mention the great Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and don't ever want to leave those guys out and Bill Russell and Jim Brown and Kareem and everybody. You know, Ernie, when I talked to you the other day when you are getting ready to interview Kareem, who's just an amazing man, like, man, I can never thank those older black guys enough because it's hard enough to play sports. I can only imagine how hard it is to play when you're stressed out all uh, all the time about what hotel you're going to stay at yeah. or where you can eat and things like that. You can never say thank you enough. Hey, I brought up with Kareem uh, your memories of when you met him for the first time at that All-Star weekend and you had walked up to him and, and – interrupted what he was doing he looked up at you and said i'm reading and you turned around and walked away he says he says i also said in that all-star game he had the chance to take a charge from you and he actually did he drew a charge from you in an all-star game he said but you you need him in the ribs and he says he still feels it so there you go you both have memories of your first meeting yes 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 (laughs) so chuck you've been hearing a lot about all these challenges right yes how are you finding out about all this stuff if you're not on the social media world yet? Tara called me uh, to help me with some of my charity stuff. So I found out about the All In Challenge, and uh, I donated to play golf with me. Yeah, the uh, the All In Challenge, Michael Rubin, co-owner of the Sixers, is spearheading a fundraising effort uh, in which athletes and celebrities can auction off incredible experiences to benefit multiple charities working towards the coronavirus relief effort, over $6.5 million raised already. Uh, So I'm going to play golf with some strangers. Um, Hold on, is this supposed to be a prize? (laughs) That's the prize? What's second place? Two rounds of golf. No, no, they get to meet Shaq. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I, I saw some of the practice. You get to play uh, play golf with Peyton Manning is one. I think you get to play golf with Tom Brady. I mean, it's some really good things. I actually might yeah. bid on some things. Chuckster, that would be – people would love to do that. To, to, to spend 18 holes with you would be – and I can speak from experience having, having a, you know, from the first year when I won the Black Masters. Uh, uh, that uh, that it was nothing like there was nothing like that day, and for g- folks who love golf and love Chuckster, that would be that would be just a beautiful day of of golf to hang out with you. Well, we know if they play golf with me, that's going to be plenty of cigar smoke, and that's going to be plenty of beers drank, and we're going to have a great time and raise a lot of money for charity. Hey, man, there's so many people doing some amazing things out there. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to my, I mean, obviously watching television, I see a lot of these uh, professional athletes are doing some amazing things. So we're so lucky and blessed in our life. We get way too much glory 
uh, which should be going to these first responders and these doctors and nurses. But I just want to give a shout out to any jock out there who's trying to make a difference because it makes a difference. Uh, I saw Steph call all the nurses. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that which was really cool. I mean, they had to go in their garage and break out the old Golden State Warriors stuff because I know they have been wearing it this year. But that, that the, the way that team been sticking up the joint, they act like they were wearing that Golden State stuff proud. No, they had to go in the bottom of their garage. But the Warriors only won <laughs> like seven games all year, so I guarantee you they weren't wearing that stuff around all year. Yeah, that's a very nice job of saluting uh, nurses and and thanking Steph Curry while at the same time working in a shot at him. That's uh, that's, that's, come on, vin- man. that's vintage you. That's vintage Come you. on, man. You know they wasn't wearing that warrior stuff around all year. Right? <laughs> I know. I know. What would you send out to somebody to challenge? Anybody you know, anybody you can think of. Look at this list goes on and on. There's a you could co-host a show with Ellen DeGeneres. You could play horse with magic. You uh you could get a walk-on in a DiCaprio De Niro movie. How about this, TK? Can you imagine how much you could a Tiger win, who's the greatest golfer ever lived? How about around the golf with Tiger Woods at Augusta? Ernie, you know how tough it is to get on Augusta. Yeah, but I think Tiger could do it. If Tiger can't get you on, he can't. No, seriously, I actually would bid to play around the golf at Augusta with Tiger Woods. I would bid on that. There's your answer. So you're challenging Tiger to say, hey, play a round of golf with me at, at, at Augusta National. A round of golf with me at Augusta. I think, you, know, you imagine what that would go for? Yeah, you and two friends join me at Augusta. Ernie, you realize what he would do to that course. Who? You. Hey, brother. Hey, let me tell you something, brother. I've been working on my game oh, hey, every go. single day. Hey, no, no. Let me tell you something. I was talking to I was talking to the guys in Vegas. I was going to be favorite going into the Black Masters this year. No, you weren't. Uh-oh. Okay, I made that <laughs> up because <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> I think the Black Masters is the only major sporting event that has not uh, officially announced a postponement or a cancellation at this point. And we're going to wait till the last damn minute. I can promise you that. I and Cheryl Ann will be ready. Cheryl Ann with the barbecue last year and the red Ooh. velvet cupcakes. And uh, and we sat out on the back patio. Uh, Vince Carter and Gary Sheffield and Chris Weber, Grant Hill. We just sat out there. Maggie was by with the grandkids. And it was just a great, great, great day. And, and um, you know, maybe one of these days we'll at least – maybe we won't be able to do golf, but we can all – socially distance on the back patio again that would be fun that worked for me as long as hey as long as you're bringing them red velvet cupcakes brother we i'm in as long as they're within tossing distance yeah <laughs> we'll uh we'll be we'll be in good shape tk you got anything else or is that it man? i'm done guys see you later tk i love you brother we will come back and, and wrap the show up oh yeah we got some phone calls out here yeah it's it's back up and operational chuck's answering machine next Back now to wrap things up on the Steam Room, episode number 13. And after a week off, I guess uh, maybe it was undergoing some type of maintenance because it is kind of old, Chuckster, but apparently your answering machine is back up and running. I like that, brother. Let's get it done. You've reached Charles Barkley. Leave a message, America. 
Charles. It's Chelsea. First of all, War Eagle. In the last show, you said you're finally thinking about joining social media. But I remember earlier this year, you said you'd rather become a vegetarian than ever join social media. So what's it going to be, Chuck? Embrace the tweets or give up the meats? <laughs> Very clever. Uh, hey, number one, War Eagle. Number one, I'm never giving up meat. I told you, I don't trust people who are vegetarians. That's not a thing. You can't eat a piece of bacon. Something wrong with you. You know, I haven't made a final decision, Kelsey. Uh, you know, Ernie has been trying to get me to do social media. And I, and I was talking to Mark Cuban. That's how the conversation came up. I haven't made a final decision. Uh, I will keep you posted. I will make, I tell you what, I'm going to make a decision before the end of this season. I promise you that. If we ever have a season. I'm not going to try to sell you on it again, but all I'm trying to tell you is that when you have good ideas and you have uh, maybe something that can help out your foundation and you want to and you want to enlist some help or tell people about a great cause, it's a wonderful way to get the news out, the word out immediately to millions of folks. So think about it some more. Give us another give us another uh, answering machine. G'day, Chuck and Ernie. This is James calling from Australia. I'm a loyal steamer since 2019 and also love the Inside the NBA and the old Open Court episodes, especially the episode where Chuck falls asleep. Unfortunately, the Olympics have been postponed this year, but Chuck, I was wondering if you could please talk about what it was like to be on the 1992 Dream Team and what were some of your favourite moments. And Ernie, what are some of your memories of it? Thanks, guys. Let me throw this out because then I'll let Chuck have the stage because he was the Dream Teamer. But I do remember being in La Jolla for your guys' first workouts because I had to do the draft. Uh, and my role in the draft was to interview Christian Leitner when he got picked. And so, yeah, I was in there and I watched him. I watched him do uh, watched a workout and uh, saw this this whole assembly of this unbelievable talent. And Chuck, I can't even imagine what it was like to to be part of that and look in, just look around in that locker room, man. Yeah, I tell people it was one, it's the coolest experience of my life. Number one, the Olympics are the greatest sporting event in the world. Uh, and th th obviously the highlight for me was when they playing the national anthem, when you get your gold medal, nothing can beat that. Nothing. I mean, it, like I say, we in America, we're probably the least, most, least patriotic people in the world. But when they're playing that national anthem for you, uh, it's the greatest feeling. But the thing I remember the most about it was, man, is how well we got along together. There was no egos. Everybody treated each other with respect and dignity. Chuck Daly was amazing. Mike Krzyzewski, Lenny Wilkins, and PJ Carlissimo. I mean, it was really cool the way we treated each other. And as you see, one of my most prized possessions is this is the United States flag that I borrowed Wink, wink. <laughs> it's got all the Dream Team members on it. Wow. Uh, so it's it's one of my most prized possessions. But also, I just want to thank my man because two of our best callers, most consistent callers, man, thanks for the love in Australia. We can't thank you enough for being law steamers. Yeah, I mean, we should point out to, and we're trying to catch his name on those, on those, um, answering machine calls it's either steph or sev or something like that he's the guy who called us about the bushfires at one point and, and and how to get the word out uh and we did get your latest uh message and uh it 
probably wasn't totally appropriate for air on the steam room. But we loved it. We both we loved, loved it. it. I'll tell you that. We loved it. I eight rings is good, brother. Yes. <laughs> so you know who you are. That's a great idea. But that's it. Chuckster, great talking to you again. It's always good to see you. You know, under these new circumstances, the way we're doing business, it's like, I look forward to this, man. Hey, I'm glad we're back with the steam room. I, hey, man, give some. we need to give somebody some content because – I'm tired of watching old games. So thanks, Law Steamers. And we hope you, and thank you again for Dr. Rowe, man. Way to inspire people. Yeah, exactly. That was, uh, that was one of our favorite segments of all time. And a guy who's putting it all out there every day with these 24 hour shifts up there at Mass General Hospital. Chuckster, great seeing Hi, you. Brother. And uh, to all you loyal steamers, thanks for listening to us. Uh, this has been the Steam Room, episode 13. Tell your friends we need some more loyal steamers. We still got room. 